0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 600 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's also a donations page that explains a few alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Tara Springett. Welcome, Tara.
1: Hello, Ulrich.
0: I'll just read a little bio of Tara here, and then we'll get, we'll get going. From teenage years onward, Tara has been deeply interested in personal growth and self-development and has dedicated her life to this quest. She holds an MA in education and has postgraduate qualifications in gestalt therapy, body awareness therapy, and transpersonal therapy. She's a fully qualified and licensed psychotherapist and counselor. She has worked as a drug counselor for adolescents and general psychotherapist since 1988, Tara has been a dedicated Buddhist practitioner since 1986. In 97, she received encouragement from her Buddhist teacher, Rigzen Shikpo, to teach meditation to others. In 2002, her Buddhist teacher, Venerable Garshen Rinpoche, also encouraged her to teach. Tara has since taught ongoing meditation groups and combines Buddhist wisdom and her experience in counseling when assisting her clients and with their personal growth, self-development, improvement. Since 2011, she has specialized in helping people suffering from Kundalini Syndrome, which is, I think, going to be the main focus of our conversation today. She is the author of several self-help books. She has been featured in numerous publications and has appeared on various radio and TV shows in Europe and the U.S. And she is a regular contributor to BeliefNet.com. Tara was born in 1960, lives in the beautiful countryside of Devon in England, where she also works in her private counseling practice uh, over Skype, together with her husband, Nigel. In her free time, she loves to walk in nature, visit old-fashioned English tea rooms, and lavish many hours of work on her flower garden, the results of which you can see over her right shoulder there. (laughs) Some of the results of which. So, as I mentioned in our bio, Tara... We are going to mainly be talking about Kundalini, and I, I think this is good. I've, I've had several interviews that focus on that. Um, with, I've done two with Bonnie Greenwell and, uh, one with Joan Shiva-Pita Harrigan and a few others. Charles Edwards, I think. Lawrence, Lawrence Edwards. Edwards, yes. We often get contacted by people who are ha- having Kundalini problems, and I have actually a few referral emails saved here, which I say, try these people, and I don't always know what happens to them when they when I try these people. Although one person we heard from recently, and I, I referred her to somebody, and that person was holding Zoom meetings of people who were having kundalini problems, and she participated in one of those, and she said everybody was doing kriyas, and it got her going, and it made it even worse. <laughs> so it seems to be a thing. I started having kundalini experiences myself in 1970 after a one-month meditation course, and I had been meditating a couple of years. But it wasn't really a problem. I knew what it was, and I didn't fight it. I didn't encourage it. And that energy is, is still lively. It's a lifelong process. Um So it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It does have a scary reputation, I know, in, in some circles. And it can be scary. I mean, especially if you don't know what it is. But I think what you would agree, and and you can certainly comment on this now, is there's ways of handling it. And it's actually a blessing if you understand it properly and handle it properly.
1: Yes. A lot of clients who come to us, they have a lot of negative emotions. Virtually everybody of them, they have very strong anxiety. Other strong emotions like depression, anger, Some have pains in the body. Some have scary energy movements in the body. And then some also struggle with paranormal experiences, you know, ghosts, demons and that like. And so I have developed a practice which is called Higher Consciousness Healing, which we use to help these people. And so we always start with the emotions first. So let's first, we start with the anxiety first. So I have a very effective anti-anxiety technique it works practically in the first five minutes that they start using it. The anxiety comes down. And if if you carry on using these techniques, then the anxiety comes down also in, general, in a general way. And uh, if you're not anxious anymore, all of that is in a way less scary and uh, can be managed much more effectively. We give people explanation what the Kundalini is. And first of all, we say we don't really like that word kundalini because it conjures up the idea of a snake crawling around (laughs) in you something you know something from outside coming into you and and you're the victim of that but that's not really a very good approach the best way of thinking about kundalini awakening is as a consciousness expansion there was michael and now he had a kundalini awakening and now there's more of michael more of his unconscious stuff so that's already a lot less scary. What we say about all the energy movements in the body, people are very scared, and they say, "Oh, the Kundalini was very strong again last night. I felt it in the body; it was moving around." So, uh, what we say is, these movements really there are our own suppressed emotions which become conscious. And because they're not completely conscious, just halfway, we experience them as energy. And this is nothing from outside, nothing new, nothing added to your system. It's just you and more of you than you knew you had. It's unconscious stuff emerging from the unconscious mind. And so we translate all these weird and wonderful symptoms into concepts that that people are familiar with. They're familiar with themselves. Okay, there's more of myself. Fine, I can deal with that. But with the snake and a kundalini energy crawling around in me, no, that's scary, I can't deal with that. But you don't have to deal with that, because that's really not the, the wrong way of thinking about it.
0: And if you Google the word kundalini, you're going to find scary things. And You might read Gopi Krishna's account of what he went through, and you don't want to go through that. But as I mentioned in my own experience, it wasn't scary. I knew what it was, I'd heard about it, and I, I was feeling so good anyway from that course. But I was having these movements and face grimaces and stuff. And In fact, I was driving an ice cream truck at the time, and sometimes if I came to a red light and just sat still for a moment, my head would start to twitch. You know? But okay, I knew what it was. And it eventually subsided, and it wasn't so involuntary. But obviously, again, I mean, you use the word scary several times and anxiety, and if it started happening to a person, and I've heard of cases when it has, and they hadn't a clue... What it was, they could think, "Oh my God, what's wrong? I have some neurological problem," and it could be very scary.
1: Yes, lots of people think they are ill. They have gone to lots of doctors, to neurologists, and get checked out, and it's frightening.
0: And if the doctor saw them and twitching and doing kriyas and stuff like that, he would probably be freaked out unless he had seen such a thing. He, he'd think, "What's well, really something wrong with this person?"
1: Exactly. And with the kriyas, really, we use the idea. That uh, before the kundalini awakening, we are like an ice block. And then through the kundalini awakening, this ice starts to melt. And then the water starts to trickle. And when this becomes stronger and there's like little rivers running through you, then you can have experiences in which, let's say, a big chunk of ice breaks off where your unconscious mind makes strong movements inside. Because our unconscious mind is in our physical body. In this shoulder, there might be an old memory, a traumatic memory. In this shoulder, there might be some antisocial uh, primitive drives that you have suppressed for good reason. And so when that comes up, we don't really want this to come up. This stuff is repressed for good reason. And then when it comes up, we still have some repression going. And so then it comes up as a jerk or as an energy movement. And that can manifest on the outside so that you, your head moves or jerks and so on. And basically what we say to people, these careers, this is at the beginning phases. This subsides with time because the ice will melt more slowly and you can pace yourself more in this process. And then these queers either stop or they become much less it is important also that you learn to control the kriyas. Because if the kriyas start controlling you, you can have a problem. Some people really get into problems. They couldn't even go outside anymore because they were just jerking, arms flailing, and, and so forth. Yeah. There was one client I had. She was training to be a Zen priest. And then while she was sitting in the Zen and everybody's so strict there, and she was jerking all the time and they were not happy about it. And so basically she was thrown out. She could not complete that training. And so it is better to learn to control these things, and then you can sometimes let it all out. If you give it some time where you say, okay, now I can jerk and let it all go. It's not particularly good or bad for you. It's neither way. It's just part of the process. Then you can slowly start to manage that process better and get control over it. Yeah,
0: My teacher at the time used to say, it's a natural thing. Don't try to suppress it, but at the same time, don't encourage it. Don't make a big fuss about it. I've seen many situations where it's kind of a badge of honor, and it's like, who can do the coolest kriyas? And, you, you know, you get some groups with some teachers that are just, it's like a nuthouse. Everybody's just going through all this stuff, and it's, it's encouraged. It's like, oh boy, you're really getting yeah. some results now. Personally, I've, I'm quite skeptical of that.
1: Yes, this is just when the ego hijacks this process and says, look at me, I can do the best careers and I have this involuntary yoga position and look, I can bend like this. Normally, I can never bend like this. And that's clearly when the ego latches onto this and says, "Uh, you know, I'm so special and so great. And, And that is not a good idea. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, we call the Kundalini path the secret path. And it's called secret because it's meant to be kept secret. This is meant to be inner processes, while outwardly we appear as completely ordinary people. So that's the ideal. And if we um, show off with these kind of things, then the danger to make an ego trip out of this is quite high.
0: Yeah. Yeah. To a certain extent, I'm going to use the outline of your book as a guide to our conversation but i want to follow up on a couple things you you just said you were talking about how there could be something stored in one shoulder and something stored in another shoulder do various let's say past traumas and so on actually get stored in very specific parts of the body like that
1: yes they do you know we need to imagine that our physical body is penetrated through the uh, an energy body so this is the body in which we feel our thoughts and emotions, and also the thoughts and emotions that we don't feel because they're in our unconscious mind. They're literally stored in the body, and they're stored according to certain topics, and the topics are the chakras. So let's say here up in the, in the brain, certain thoughts and beliefs, let's say very depressive, morbid thoughts we repress in the brain, or maybe we have some megalomania, thinking we're the greatest, and we know that isn't good, so we repress that. And here in the throat chakra, this is all about reciprocity, giving and taking, and confident of finding our voice and saying our thing. In the heart, there's topics about love and relationships. Solar plexus is about bonding. Naval is about possessions, material possessions, power. And the root chakra is about survival and also about pleasure. If you have an issue around pleasure and lots of guilt, for example, Maybe some people had an affair or something, and they have real bad guilt feelings about that, but repress that. So I've seen in a number of my clients that they had really bad pain in the root chakra, in the genitals, really. So where the pain and the symptoms manifest has something to do with the topic of the chakra that is nearest to it.
0: I see. That makes sense. The traumas or, or issues of certain types would be stored in chakras that are associated with those kinds of things. That makes sense. You mentioned the subtle physiology, I think, a minute ago. There's this whole science of esoteric physiology in the East about the nadis. I think there's supposed to be 72,000 nadis. And then you have the shishumna running up the spine and the ida and the pingala going around that. And there's a whole thing about the flow of the breath through the nostrils. It's associated with, you know, which side, you know, the energy is flowing and so on. Do you concur with that model or do you differ from it?
1: Well, when we look at these images and there is a proper channel there and proper channels there and so on, it, it looks as if we have this inner plumbing system and then there might be some block there or a diamond cap there and you have to pierce it. And it, it all becomes very materialistic. And, um, and that's not how I see this working. So I see the Kundalini process and the unconscious mind coming forward more as a psychological process. And those plumbing images, they're not helpful because we, we start thinking, oh, here's a blockage. I need to push it through. And no, this this is not how it works. A better image is to imagine that we're like a river and there's lots of currents in it. And yes, there are certain currents that go a little bit more that way and currents going a little bit more that way, but not in this kind of orderly fashion. Even better is to think about the whole thing as a kind of psychospatial process. And the issues that we're having is not blockages, but more like beliefs, emotions, old wounds, some wrong megalomania and and stuff like that. That's the material that we are working with. And if you work with that, all the blockages disappear. So if you make it more... A mental, a spiritual process,
0: really. My understanding of that whole thing with the nadis and the ida and the pingala and the shishimna and all, it's not something that a surgeon would find if they cut you open, even if they used some kind of microscope to look for those things. It's all subtle body stuff. It just wouldn't be found in the physical body. And I presume, I'm not positive, I don't know too much about Chinese medicine, but but the whole thing with acupuncture where there are these energy lines and they, they can influence them by putting needles in here and there, I'm presuming that a uh, microscopic surgery wouldn't find those things either. We do have a subtle body, uh, would you agree? And it might have its own structure which does not correspond exactly to the gross body.
1: Yes, the TCM, the Chinese medicine. I do find a correlation. I can see this is uh, uh, working with my clients. So, for example, if my clients have anger issues, so in, in TCM they call that liver heat rising, and then it's what's TCM? Traditional Chinese medicine. So liver heat rising means that energy comes up and it comes through the gallbladder meridian. It comes here, so that's on the side and then it goes up there and then it goes in the head and then you get a headache and so on. And that's exactly what my clients tell me. They say, oh, I've got this rib pain and then it goes here into my shoulder and I've got this headache. And that correlates very much with what the Chinese uh, people say. But we don't need to say, yes, it's exactly this line. You know, it's more like, yes, I have pain here and here and that's roughly corresponds to the gallbladder meridian but again what i discourage is to look at the whole thing in this materialistic way yeah it's a subtle phenomenon to think well yeah it's more a mental phenomenon you know it's emotions and thoughts that's what we're dealing with you think differently you're less angry and all the pain all the pressure all of that disappears
0: well those the, the emotions and the mind are subtle you don't cut a person open and find those either, but they're very real. So we just, we have, the, there's a subtler reality to our existence than the, the flesh and blood level. And I think that's what we're talking about here mostly. Even the whole idea of Kundalini as energy, materialists might say, what do you mean energy? You mean some kind of metabolic process or glucose levels or they're trying to define it in terms of gross stuff and they won't understand it that way.
1: No, it is about our thoughts, it is about our emotions. The image that I use is that of an hourglass. I think you have a slide of that. At the top of the hourglass, we have our higher consciousness experience, and there we have experiences of spiritual nature, like bliss and union with the divine. And on the bottom, we have the unconscious mind, and that's more where we have more difficult experiences or impulses that we have stored there. And if you go down the street and you find a typical materialistic person who is very atheistic, they will say, an unconscious mind, a shadow side, I don't have one. And God, God is dead. (laughs) And they identify with that little thing there in the middle. So up and down is completely frozen. Now, in the Kundalini process, this ice is melting and it always melts up and down at the same time. So that's why, let's say, you do intensive psychotherapy, shadow work or so forth, and you go to a workshop and do that. And then maybe you go for a walk in the afternoon and suddenly you get your first bliss experience because you melt it also up there. You know, it goes up there and you find nature so beautiful like you've never seen it before. Or the other way around, you go to a meditation retreat and you try so hard and you say your mantra and you try to guide all your thoughts and feelings into spiritual pathways. And the more you try, the more anger comes up and the more you have very unspiritual impulses because your shadow side is coming up. Then what happens is that people oscillate between these bliss experiences and some meltdowns and they think, am I going mad? If Is this the right path that I'm going here? Is this all for the good? And the answer is yes, it is for the good. I've made this four levels of spiritual practice and maybe we could have that uh, slide, if you have it ready. It is quite good to understand how all this fits together. And in Tibetan Buddhism, we have the four levels of spiritual practice. The first level we call Hinayana. And that is what we in the West really call mindfulness. You know, that's where people learn to have witness consciousness, observing their thoughts, calming their mind. And it also goes together with ethical living. That's a very important foundation of the work.
0: I just want to jump in there and put a pin on that point about ethical living that's glossed over a lot in spiritual circles sometimes but if you talk to anybody who really appreciates the traditional values of spirituality they'll say that's that's a foundation you can't really have higher consciousness without it if you try to you're going to have problems
1: Absolutely, and I agree with that. And people sometimes say, oh, I just do this meditation and then I will be enlightened. Yeah, Yet they go on. chance. I don't know. <laughs> Having affairs or, or doing not very nice things to other people, it's not going to work. So that's the first foundation, very important. And then the second level up we call Mahayana, and that's the focus on loving kindness, on meditations, on forgiveness and compassion and also devotional practices to a deity of some sort or Jesus or Buddha or Divine Mother. It doesn't really matter how you call it, but to have a personal devotional practice to some personalized sense of your higher power. And people sometimes think, I don't need that. I just do my practice. But that's, that would be the Hinayana level. You know, if you want to go further, according to Tibetan Buddhism, that needs to happen. And then the third level, one up, is Vajrayana. And here we work with the chakras, which we already uh, talked about a little bit, where you clear out the chakras, access your unconscious mind, clear out negative unconscious impulses, And in order for that to happen, you have to have awakened Kundalini because without the Kundalini, you can't even feel that. It's too unconscious and you can't even feel those chakras. You might feel a little bit of love when you watch a sad movie or you feel sexual feelings. But apart from that, this is all pretty numb. It's still frozen. So we need awakened Kundalini for that. And then when we do this work, then people will start for the first time to have prolonged states of bliss so they go into that but as i just explained they can then oscillate very much between (laughs) meltdown tantrum stuff coming up and then going into bliss stages anymore and it is on that level that i help my clients this is how they come to me they say you know my mind is all over the place i don't know what's going on with me i've got all these experiences so the, the next level up is we call Dzogchen or Ati Yoga, and I think Advaita is also in that realm, I'm not a specialist for that, where this is more a culmination of the first three stages. The whole thing becomes quite effortless. So you are mindful, you're ethical, you're full of love, you have devotion. You clear out your unconscious mind. You know, you do it in the moment of its arising. So you get a negative thought or something comes up in your mind before it even has fully formed. You can already let it go, transform into bliss. And if that all becomes very effortless, then you have more and more ongoing bliss experiences and live in that state, nirvana. And then some people would say, oh, great, I'm enlightened now. But that's not true because in that stage, there's still an ego there that looks on and says, look at me, I've got all these wonderful bliss experiences. Surely I must be enlightened now. You must all worship me. And, and that's where a lot of teachers lose their plot. That's where it's so many people who really started out very well start doing strange things and behaving badly because they haven't really understood that this isn't quite the end. And so what happens in that state spontaneously, you can't make that happen, is that at some point you experience yourself as the deity, as the deity of your worship, and that's why you need a deity in your spiritual practice. So if you are a devotee of Christ, let's say, you experience yourself as Christ-like. Or if you are a Buddhist practitioner and your deity is Vaitara, you experience yourself as Vaitara with all the ornaments, hair up there, and so it's an inner experience. And then you think, well, surely I must be enlightened now. I'm deity now. (laughs) You're getting there as long as you don't, again, your ego doesn't hijack that and say, I'm the deity and you must worship me now. And it takes a lot of time until that really consolidates. And what people... I find is that when they go into these bliss experiences, they often do it through a certain chakra inadvertently, they don't know that, but let's say they experience bliss in the head chakra, is very common, or in the heart chakra, and then they start overusing these chakras, and the other chakras are not cleared out properly from the unconscious stuff. so then, again, very strange things can happen, that you do bad things, yet you can also access these very high states. So it is important to carry on working with all the chakras, really clearing them all out, particularly also the lower chakras, where we have so-called lower drives, and to liberate ourselves from all these unconscious stuff, our animal-type impulses that are in there. And then the experience of being the deity will become deeper. And then after some time, it will become very automatic, and people will start recognizing us as the deity. They will approach us like that. They'll start worshiping us. Now that's more what we call enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism.
0: So, I have a few questions. Firstly, about the different levels, which I'll show on the screen again here. You mentioned that um, as we move up through them, we don't lose the things from the lower levels. We just incorporate more that are in the higher levels, and it kind of reminds me of the analogy of a building as you go to higher floors you don 't lose the view from the lower floors. you just gain a broader view that includes the the earlier views and it kind of sounded like these are sequential the way you explain them you don 't go from one to four or from one to three to two to four or anything. they roughly move in a sequential order
1: yes um that's right. Uh, there are different people, and some people are quite we call that talented, and they can jump very quickly to the chakra work. And ethical living comes very easily to them. They never have done anything bad to anybody. And for other people, they have to really, really work on their aggressive impulses. And that takes them a lot of time to harness that. We have the image of a house that symbolizes this teaching. So Hinayana, ethical living, mindfulness is the foundation of the house. Without the foundation, nothing goes. And uh, Mahayana, loving-kindness and devotional practice, like the walls of the house, safer already, quite good, but you still get wet. And then the Vajrayana teaching and the Dzogchen teaching, they're like the roof of the house. And so there's two approaches. Either you start from the bottom and do it properly, sequentially, first one thing, first Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. But we, we can also start from the top. So we start directly with Dzogchen teaching, and then fill in all the gaps that are still missing. That's possible too. But you're right, in the end, we only have a proper house if we get all levels right. And the fourth level is really just a culmination of the, the first three.
0: Yeah. You may be familiar with Ken Wilber's lines of development idea, you know. Have you heard about that? Where He just says there are these various lines of development that we all have. And ideally, we want to develop them in sync with one another, but they can get quite out of sync, where you can be quite far developed along a certain line and yet really stunted in other lines, and that can cause problems. I I find that explanation kind of helpful to to come to terms with the phenomena of teachers who really do seem to have a lot of spiritual attainment and yet are found to be really lacking in, in certain areas such as ethics or this and that.
1: Yes i think this is very a good explanation so i'm using more the model of the chakras that some people maybe they have their heart chakra very developed and their head chakra but they still have quite a bit of nasties in their lower
0: chakras <laughs> and <laughs> which they might not even know are there and yet at a yeah, certain point might. all hell breaks loose
1: yeah, they might know they're there, but they think, oh, nobody sees it and it's not so bad. And they give some themselves some rationalizations where well, that isn't so bad. And yes, they lost their temper, but who wouldn't in that situation? And other than that, I'm a great spiritual teacher and, you know, rationalizations and so forth. So that's why it is very important to kind of get the bliss experience into all of the chakras and to liberate All the negativity from all the chakras. And that's not so easy because the chakras are like big and wide. You know, they look small on our body, but there's a lot of stuff in them. You know, memories from this life, memories from past lives. Our animal type consciousness. I mean, we still have a reptile brain. We all have animal type impulses like territorial thinking, this is my place and you're not to go over this boundary and if you do I will kill you or shoot you or something, you know, it's very strong. It's not so easy to, to get rid of these kind of things. Yeah.
0: Well, that kind of leads into my next question. You mentioned clearing out all the chakras and just now you said something about infusing all the chakras with bliss. Um so people might be wondering, well, how do you clear out all the chakras? And is it is it by infusing them with in bliss? And how do you do that?
1: Well, we have to go through the four steps. You know, we have to start with calming the mind, being able to observe ourselves, have witness consciousness, hinayana. Ethical living, being impeccable in our moral behavior, which isn't so easy, you know, when you think about all those little conflicts that we may have with our neighbors, with the shop assistant and with God knows. You know, to be very, very conscious about the moral dimension of life. And you're right. A lot of spiritual teachings, they want to do away with that. Moral, you know, who talks about morality these days? Not many people. Yeah, the
0: world is an illusion. You, know, there is, you can be totally enlightened scoundrel. I've, I've heard people saying things like this.
1: <sighs> yes, and which is totally wrong. And that's exactly what I'm saying, where you might have some enlightened experience in some chakra, but because you still have the bad impulses in other chakras, you then come up with this rationalization of karma doesn't really exist so i can rape you and it doesn't matter because you don't have an ego i don't have an ego nothing is done yeah Yeah? so that's completely wrong Uh believe it or uh, not people
0: say these things
1: i I do know i also read this book (laughs) (laughs) so this is why why it is important to understand the foundation has to be morality. And then you have to also really, really be like a train on a train track for loving kindness. There's no going that way or that way. You have to be like on that track. And then you have to work with the chakras. The way you work with the chakras is Basically, when you have awakened Kundalini, this isn't so difficult, you know, because you can feel them because they are running amok in you, you know, they're throwing stuff up, like strong emotions, like you have massive anxiety in the in the chest or huge amount of anger in the lower chakras or very bad thoughts and emotions and uh, paranormal experiences, which maybe relate to the head chakra. So you learn to calm that down. And the way I do that is with the higher consciousness healing. Where we have several steps where you... We'll go
0: through that, right? We'll talk about higher consciousness healing. Yeah, we can do that later.
1: And, And if you learn to calm it down at some point, they will naturally automatically turn into bliss because that's their nature. You know, our true nature is to be blissful. It's just all those negative stuff, conscious and unconscious, that covers that up. And once you get rid of that, which happens pretty much automatically in the Kundalini process, and that's why the Kundalini process is a wonderful process. People moan about it and they say, oh, Kundalini ruined my life. Well, no, your unconscious stuff is ruining your life. And you should be glad about this opportunity that you're kind of forced to deal with that now, because if you weren't forced to deal with that, your unconscious stuff would drive your life. And it would drive it in the wrong direction. So I have sometimes young people and they were on drugs and then they say, I can't take drugs anymore. Can't go partying. Kundalini ruined all the fun in life. <laughs> and I say.
0: Congratulations. Yeah.
1: Well, it it also saved your life because if you had carried on taking these drugs, you might be dead by now. And so you should be very glad that this happened to you.
0: Absolutely. I would be dead by now. I mean, as soon as I learned to meditate, I I dropped all my friends and who were all taking drugs. And if I hadn't done that, I'm quite sure I wouldn't be alive anymore, and some of them aren't. So it's it's a blessing. And and you're always going to find new friends, and things will just get better. And you learn this. You gain greater and greater confidence in this as you go along, that if you keep stepping in the direction of higher consciousness or evolution— Things always work out for the best, so don't bemoan leaving behind some darker things.
1: (laughs) Yes, but, uh, you know, this is part of my counseling. People do grieve about the stuff that they have to leave behind because it's not so easy. Also, let's say with your original family, there are certain things in every family that's where stuff gets swept under the rug. And you have to have certain family secrets and you have to go along with that to get on with everybody Now, in the Kundalini process, we are driven to authenticity. We want to be genuine and honest. And the world doesn't appreciate honesty. And so there's often quite a conflict there. You know, how can I carry on having good relationship with the people I love or my original family and yet express myself honestly? And so that's part of the counseling that I do.
0: There's a Sanskrit saying, I forget the Sanskrit, but the English is, speak the truth which is sweet. So you don't have to go home to your parents and just start punching them in the nose with all kinds of confrontational points. You can be more diplomatic and nuanced than that, at least ideally.
1: It is not always possible, you know, in some respects, you know, for example, out in my own respect, my, both my parents are alcoholics or were alcoholics. I didn't get any further with diplomacy with them. It ended up in an estrangement. And that wasn't very easy.
0: Yeah, well, we all have different situations, but my father was an alcoholic too, and I eventually got him to learn to meditate, and it helped him some, but the habit was so deep-seated, and his PTSD from World War II was so heavy that he never quite broke out of that and ended up dying from an alcohol-related accident. But, you know, we do what we can. We love these people, even if they've <laughs> been sources of trauma for us and, and difficulty, and you you try to help.
1: Yeah, if you are in a situation that your father could be helped, or you you had the good relationship, and then that's wonderful.
0: There's an old Bengali saying, which is, if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. So you call, you say, okay, come on, here's this, this is great. But if they refuse to listen or can't listen, then all right, well, I've got to keep moving. Another point I want to pick up on that you mentioned is, you mentioned that Kundalini is expanded consciousness. In fact, that's one of the main points in your book. And As you were speaking earlier, I was thinking of this thought I often think, which is that expanded consciousness, or Kundalini, is kind of like a solvent. And that's why I think when we have these expansions, they very often alternate with purgations, you could say, where there's some kind of dissolving of accumulated stuff, and then once it's dissolved and we're rid of it, then we might dip into another blissful, expanded state. But then that stirs up more stuff. and then you, So something, very often one goes through a cycle like this. You hear people report it. And eventually, you know, the cycle becomes less dramatic. And, it, and you pretty much arrive at a, a continuum of bliss, which you alluded to earlier. But you do have to go through it.
1: Absolutely. And to say, oh, you can just snap out of this whole samsaras so or the, the ordinary world and be enlightened on the dot without going through that lengthy process of clearing out your unconscious mind, that is not correct, at least not from the Tibetan Buddhist point of view and, and also from my own point of view of having lived in this process for so many years. And counseling all these, you know, I think I've counseled now 1,500 clients and I see people and some of them now kind of far in their process. And so they all have to go through that process. So one could really say that when the Kundalini awakening happens, then that's a second time in our spiritual practice really begins. I mean, the first time it begins when we when we make the decision to go to a meditation center or start meditating or praying or something. So that's the first beginning. And then that gets on for a while. And then there's a second beginning when the Kundalini rises. And then often people feel, I have to start from the beginning. And people say to me, oh, I don't want to deal with this kind of thing. Again, I I've dealt with that 20 years ago in psychotherapy. But what happens is that maybe in this psychotherapy they've scratched the surface or dealt with a certain amount of stuff, but not on a deeper level. And the Kundalini awakening is bringing up more deep-seated stuff. And so then they have to clear out that more strongly and have to do that again and also maybe work more strongly with loving kindness and forgiveness than they have done before.
0: Good point. In my own experience, I find that, well, I totally concur with what you said, that this isn't the weekend Project or (laughs) one week project or a year project, even it's a lifelong thing. And you do go through deeper and deeper stages of the same thing. You might be dealing with a certain issue for decades and you're just shaving away at, at deeper levels of it as you go. And I presume eventually all this stuff gets resolved, but I think it's good to have a realistic understanding as you're explaining here, because if people have unrealistic expectations, then they're going to get disillusioned or disappointed or lose motivation or, or some such thing. Yes. But it's really not discouraging to say this is something that you'll be working at all your life. It's actually, I find it inspirational. It's like, oh boy, life is this exciting project, this exciting adventure where I just get to discover deeper and deeper values as I go along. What a, what a wonderful thing.
1: Yes, it's a path. People sometimes have the idea is first I work on my spiritual path and then I get enlightened or awakened and then I'm there and that's a place and then I can stay there and everything will be good. But if you really think about it, that's quite boring. If you go on a hike and then you get to the mountain top, and then you have your picnic up there, you don't want to stay there forever. You want to either go to another mountain top, or you want to go down again and then go to another hike. And it's the same thing. On the spiritual path, in Tibetan Buddhism, we do not believe that even Buddhas are complete in themselves. You know, their process goes on and on and on forever and ever on a finer level than ours. We are just rummaging around on the gross level of imperfections. On let's say a completely enlightened being, White Tara or Buddha Shakyamuni. They still have to clear out stuff and they carry on doing that. And doing that can be enjoyable. I myself, I'm in this process now, um, how long? 43 years. And I enjoy that. I want to carry on going to deeper and deeper levels. And at some point, it also it becomes maybe a little less about yourself. You know, certain things have been clarified. But then the question that really becomes more strong is, how can I help others? Now, that question can never be completely resolved because there are billions of different people and they all need an individual approach. And what works for one doesn't work for another. And so to refine your methods, which I do in my counseling, to really help everybody, you know, I find that highly enjoyable.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like education in a way. It would sound absurd to say, now I'm educated you know, as if you couldn't learn anything more. And if you're really an inquisitive person, you, you'll you be fascinated with learning more all of your life. And at a certain stage, there's a good chance you'll become a teacher of some sort because you love knowledge and you want to impart it to others. You want to share with others what has been so beneficial to you. So I think it's really the same with this whole spiritual thing.
1: Yeah, I, that's really bringing it to a point. You know, I agree with that. Yeah.
0: One other thing you said a little earlier, which I wanted to question you more on, was about becoming a deity or realizing you're a deity and people treat you as a deity. I guess that's a Tibetan Buddhist thing. I'm not so familiar with that as a stage of potential development. Obviously we, we revere great spiritual beings like Jesus and Ramana Maharshi and, and others. They are worthy of even reverence. But I don't know if any of them would call themselves deities. Well, maybe. I mean, Christ said, I am my father, one. He didn't say, I am God, but he just said, I am one with God, which I think is something that we can all aspire to. But I was just a little tripped up when you were talking about becoming a deity. That was a little unfamiliar to me, and maybe you could clarify that.
1: Yes, I think this is just another way of referring to the state of enlightenment, because it is something that is happening in your body. It doesn't just happen in your brain or in your mind. It is something that completely and utterly transform you. And so the way you experience yourself in your old identity, like with your birth name, and that has always this baggage of old limitations, old ideas, who you are or not are, And all of that, if that completely and utterly gets wiped away and and will be replaced with something that you can only experience as somebody completely different, nothing to do with me, what I think me is. And in that experience, some people have expressed it like God is looking out through my own eyes. Yeah, okay. Or I feel as, as a completely different being. And the old person that I was with all... Those ideas of what I can and can't do and how I am, that's all gone. And in Tibetan Buddhism, we call that deity practice. So deity practice where we communicate with the deity, we see light going between our different chakras. And in the end, the Buddha or deity emerges into us and becomes us. This is so kind of visualization technique. But at some point, that becomes reality, it's something that is irrefutable. You can just feel it. It is like that. And at the beginning, that state might last for a second, then it becomes like a minute, and then it becomes longer and prolonged
0: state. Yeah, so that makes more sense. For instance, Muttananda used to say, God dwells within you as you. That was like actually the, was written on the sign outside of their ashram. And, you know, a great many sages from all different traditions have spoken about merging with that inner divinity, realizing that one's essential nature is divine and that that divinity permeates the whole cosmos. So it's not like you become a god, rather that you realize that your essential nature is that to which the word god refers. Would that be an adequate way of saying it?
1: Well, yeah, you could see it like that. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, we really have this sense of being the deity with a completely different body. And that's something that you feel.
0: Yeah,
1: It is also known in the Eastern Christian Church. They call it theosis or deification, mm-hmm. where you and God becomes one. Yeah. In the Western Christian Church, is completely lost. But the, the Eastern people, like in Greek and Russia, they still have mm-hmm. that. So it's known in different traditions with different names or labels. And in Tibetan Buddhism, they call it deity practice or becoming the deity, or you can also call it enlightenment. I think this is just words in the same experience.
0: That's more clear. Buddhism in general sometimes has a reputation of being sort of agnostic and not dealing with the issue of God. But it sounds like Tibetan Buddhism talks about it a lot more.
1: Yes. The Hinayana, the first level where we do mindfulness, ethical livery, living, you can do that without any God or beliefs. And there's plenty of Buddhists or people who follow Buddhist teachings who who sign up to that type of Buddhism because they are not ready yet to go a step further and have that personal relationship to a personalized higher power. Tibetan Buddhism is very strong on deities. So it belongs to the tantric past, the tantric Buddhism, which is quite different from Hinayana. So, Vajrayana and Hinayana, when you look into it, they are often completely contradictory. So, in in Hinayana and in mindfulness, it's all about surrender, letting go, acceptance. Now, when you come to Vajrayana, it's all about control, (laughs) mastery, taking control of things and, and asserting yourself. Because if you have unconscious stuff coming up, like a massive, strong river going down the mountainside, you you shouldn't just surrender to that. It just makes it worse. You know, you need to build good banks, strong banks, and that you have to have very good methods. And so in Hinayana, you say whatever comes into your mind, you accept everything, you turn towards things, you don't turn away. In Vajrayana, if you see some demons, you do turn away. You don't go there and surrender to them. You need to know what you're doing because that stuff becomes very strong or can become very strong part of your experience. And so you need very different approach and technique in this. And so that also creates often a lot of confusion, you know, because people say, oh, no, you can't just do something with control and meditation. That's all wrong. You need to only surrender. Not so, not when you when you come to that part where your unconscious mind really opens up. Or another thing where people also get confused, when you practice Dzogchen and you are dwelling in this prolonged stage of bliss. Many people want to do that. They want to think they're Dzogchen practitioners because it's the highest teaching. But what they're really doing is just Hinayana. They're just observing the mind because they don't have the necessary kundalini to, to even create that bliss. You cannot have prolonged states of bliss without open kundalini. It's not possible because the very juice that makes the bliss, the energy, isn't at your disposal because it's still frozen in your unconscious mind. It's not possible. Mm.
0: Yeah, people do the same thing with the Vedic tradition, too. They just want to jump to Vedanta and vedanta means the end of the veda uh, but they haven't even gone through any of the other stages and you know they'll start saying things like you're already enlightened you don't need to do any practices and the world is an illusion and all this stuff which may be true from the ultimate perspective but it's it can be very out of sync with the stage that people are actually at and what they actually need to do to genuinely proceed to higher stages
1: yes i like to compare it with some maybe some person who is an addict who is an, who is an alcoholic or a girl who has anorexia starves herself to death you can say to these people oh that's easy you just stop drinking you just or you to that girl you said you just start eating now and theoretically that's correct only the forces that keep you in the cycles of addiction or, or very neurotic destructive behavior they are very strong and they shouldn't be underestimated and you need skillful means to help you at that stage where you are And somebody who is in the throes of addiction they need other teachings than somebody who is finds that all very easy with ethical living and sits there in prolonged states of bliss they need different teachings yeah
0: there's that saying it takes a thorn to remove a thorn I mean, if a person is a heroin addict, for instance, they might need methadone for a while or something, which is like a thorn, but not as bad as the heroin thorn. (laughs) Yes,
1: and they also need to harness the power to withstand these addictive urges and to say no, and for that part of your mind, that willpower is like a muscle, and that muscle needs to be developed by using it. And just by again and again saying, no, I won't be doing this, Gradually, you you will start to be strong enough to withstand these urges and instead do a relaxation exercise or meditation or have a hot bath or what have you. So, in theory, this is all possible. In practice, it is not.
0: Yeah. Let me jump to a question that a friend of mine asked. Um, his name is Peter, and I've known him for decades. Wonderful guy. He lives in my town. He says, uh, Can mental health issues and kundalini symptoms coexist? And if this is true, would it not make the diagnosis and treatment more complex than nuanced and over a period of time? I think he he means the treatment would need to be much more long-lasting if there is a mixture of mental health and kundalini issues.
1: Yes, absolutely correct. It is very helpful for myself because I'm a psychotherapist that I'm capable of disentangle those two diagnoses so basically with kundalini we always have a very strong spiritual urge there and that is really the differential diagnosis to other problems that people can have borderline or schizophrenia or psychosis or what have you because these experiences or drug psychosis they can look very similar to Kundalini syndrome. So people can have energy movements in the body, they can have emotional turmoil, they can be hugely sensitive, can't cope with sense stimuli, and they can have paranormal experiences. But the differential is that there is a very strong spiritual quest there and a a general feeling of wanting to make one's life healthier and more spiritual. Now, nevertheless, those two things can... A coincide. So I had a number of clients who had a Kundalini awakening, according to that diagnosis, and maybe bipolar or other mental problems. So that can be the case. And then you have to work on both levels simultaneously, which I can do because I am a psychotherapist. And so we need to discuss how does a manic state is different from a bliss state, which I mean, we write nice long lists, And there is a big difference. Mania has nothing to do with bliss. Bliss is wonderful. A manic state is driven, aggressive, irritable, not at all nice. It doesn't feel nice. It's just, it does just have this name of mania that people say, oh, yes, they're in euphoria. They're not, you know, they just appear like that. And so when you look into details, you can find that out. And then you can help people to. Look for first uh, warning signs that a manic episode is coming. They have to adhere to certain very strict rules, always sleeping, always eating, which they usually don't do. They always like to not sleep and not eat because in some way they produce these manic episodes through this kind of behavior.
0: I've been taking classes on the Bhagavad Gita with Swami Sarvapriyananda. Just just last night we covered the verses in the Gita about the importance of a regular routine on the spiritual path. Not eating too much, not eating too little, not sleeping too much, not sleeping too little, not not being too inactive, not being too active, being balanced. And slow and steady wins the race, you know, just regular routine as a lifestyle really.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's important for everybody. But if you have a bipolar diagnosis, it's life-saving. Yeah, yeah. Because every night that you don't sleep can trigger another episode. Yeah, so it is good if you have Kundalini syndrome to go to a therapist who knows both, you know, the Kundalini is symptomatic and what to do about other mental disorders and so forth. And that's basically what I do. So I mix those two things up. In my work, so everybody who comes to me, they get psychotherapy on their mental normal psychological processes which are enhanced and stronger through the Kundalini syndrome, and they get the information about Kundalini and how to harness all this, and that all of this is not such a big problem and really actually a blessing, so that comes together, and then we we just we usually make rapid progress.
0: I've been on a lot of long meditation courses, sometimes six months at a time, especially in the 70s. And this is in the TM movement, but we were in Mallorca, and there was a, a whole group of people who were just like having extreme kundalini symptoms. In fact, Marshy had them come and sit on stage on one side. That was, it was kind of theatrical. But there also seemed to be an incident of or a correlation between awakening of kundalini and actual tipping into insanity or mental instability. There were a certain percentage of people who had been living apparently normal lives, but who just really lost it as a result of what appeared to be a Kundalini awakening. Could a Kundalini awakening actually cause some kind of mental instability or illness?
1: only if you have a predisposition for that uh-huh.
0: which you may not know you have right i mean you might have
1: and that's right. right that's right so the only people who had psychosis or extreme states of confusion and very dangerous reckless behavior were people who were on drugs drug psychosis and that has i've got a number of clients who had their kundalini awakening together with the drug psychosis and that's quite difficult to handle and I think I counseled maybe a thousand people or many hundred. And then I wrote this book here, Healing Kundalini Symptoms. And uh, I have wrote in it, I've never seen anybody having a Kundalini psychosis. It's a misnomer, it doesn't exist. Well, then I had one, one person where I felt, okay, in that situation, somebody tipped into some extreme manic behavior. And there, there were no drugs in the picture. So what can I say, extremely rare, you know, to kind of frighten people with that, it's not a good idea. And I believe people only can get that if they have a disposition for that.
0: Mm. I've heard from a few people who had done ayahuasca, and perhaps we could also mention other drugs, but who then... I don't know if it was a kundalini awakening or not, but one woman I talked to not long ago, she had done ayahuasca and she, and she's been having serious problems ever since where she feels like energies are moving around in her body that she can't quite control as if there's some... I don't know, I'm just using an analogy, but as if there's some kind of animal crawling around in there doing its own thing and it makes her extremely yes. uncomfortable and, and so on. So, can ayahuasca or psilocybin and these other things initiate a Kundalini awakening, or is that something else going on that we wouldn't really want to label Kundalini?
1: When I started this work, I had the opinion that drugs cannot cause a Kundalini awakening, and I was wrong. So I've had numerous clients who did take various drugs mostly cannabis but also ayahuasca and others and that it did cause a kundalini awakening and they had a much harder time than all the other clients so I believe they would have had their kundalini awakening anyway they were ripe and then they had this trigger and then that caused that so I would really discourage people from seeking kundalini awakening through drugs because when they do they often have a quite horrendous experience. And then all the guilt, and they might have a stint in psychiatry and then have another trauma there because they get treated badly. Now, if you can, spare yourself that.
0: So and you said you wouldn't encourage them to try to have a Kundalini awakening through drugs, but as someone who has actually been a drug counselor and also a Kundalini counselor, would you discourage people from taking psychedelics in general?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> particular because I was a drugs counsellor, because I saw all those people who ended up in psychosis and who were in psychiatry and sat there like a vegetable and I didn't see all these people who can take drugs and were having a good time. I only saw oh, all you these saw car the problem crashes. cases, yeah. That's right. And uh, and when you see a lot of those people, it's just the last thing you want to have happen to you. And yeah. I said to my son, please don't do that. You just don't know what kind of landmine you have in your brain and it can go off. But the very first joint that you smoke, it doesn't have to be a hundred or a thousand. And it's very dangerous.
0: I know of a case you like know, that. Got, there's, a, there's a kid who was in my town, and I think he was like 14 or 15, and, but he was kind of a computer genius. And I would sometimes have him, I'd sometimes pay him to solve my computer problems. And he ended up like smoking one joint one time, and his life has never been the same since. Really? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I've got clients like that. And then they're labeled schizophrenic, and they can't work, and they're on disability, and their life is ruined, really. I mean, obviously, I help them to not see it as being ruined. And I shouldn't have said life is ruined. They feel their life is ruined. Obviously, you can make something good out of every situation. But if you um, have a choice, don't take that risk. And also with ayahuasca, they say that medicine plant is only good, can never do any harm. I cannot confirm that. I've got a number of clients who taken ayahuasca and had a horrible time. I mean, that's maybe some of the shamans say that, and maybe it's true if it's taken in the tribal situation in a kind of traditional setting. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I'm not there, but I know that Western people who go there and have a workshop, that a number of them have come to me and high anxiety, confusion bad paranormal experiences ever since.
0: Now I'm very well aware and you may be too that some good research has been done at Johns Hopkins and NYU and other places and uh there's sort of a psychedelic renaissance going on in the in the world right now and there's been some really good results in helping alcoholics and terminal cancer patients and people addicted to cigarettes and, and other things like that. So I'm I wouldn't be absolutist about this, but in those clinical settings it's done so carefully. And people are screened so carefully beforehand, and the whole thing is conducted in such a a careful, scrutinized way. But it's just such a powerful thing, and just not to be played with in a cavalier way, you can get into trouble.
1: Yes, I've not had clients who had taken... No, it's not true. I have had clients who have taken cannabis in a medicinal way, and I didn't have a problem with that. But there's no guarantee You know, if you take something in good faith, with a good motivation and for medicinal reason, maybe you have less side effects. I cannot tell. It's
0: possible. Shifting topics. I uh, interviewed Joan Shiva-Pita Harrigan some years ago, and she's widely regarded as quite an authority on Kundalini, and she had a clinic in Tennessee. I don't think it's active now, but a number of my friends went there and had marvelous experiences, really good results. One thing that she has written about and talked about is what she calls a deflected kundalini rising, where the kundalini sort of rises to a certain extent and then kind of goes off track and gets stuck. She explains, and and not only she, other people have talked about this, that this can endow you with Eloquence and charisma and even siddhis and you might seem to be radiating light and all, but you're not there all the way there and you can be very off the track and your behavior can begin to reflect that at a certain point and cause all kinds of problems. Do you share that sort of understanding about a deflected Kundalini rising? And she offers methods for getting it undeflected and, you know, and all, but is that, or is that a different way of thinking than yours?
1: It is a quite different way of thinking. I've read a book and, you know, there's a lot of detail in there. So what she describes as deflected risings, I mean, they are artistic people or people who are very much into intense experiences like sex or art or something like that. These are not the people who would pass my Kundalini test. So for me, I wouldn't even call that somebody with awakened Kundalini because simply the spiritual quest isn't there you know, the intense desire to develop spiritually.
0: Oh, but it may be. I can, I can think of teachers who were very much on the spiritual path and had profound awakening, but then ended up becoming a real troublemakers. And we don't need to go into all the gory details. And, you know, wouldn't they possibly be a case of a deflected or partial rising that has become a problem
1: well you see that's more what i uh, refer to that you know they have spiritual experiences and they clear out some chakras but usually not the lower ones Uh yeah and uh, and then these let's say sexual impulses get really really stimulated and and because there's some megalomania going and then they um they believe that's okay because they think of themselves wrongly that they're enlightened and that they can do anything and that there's some confusion going I would call it you know, part of the confusion that can happen in, in the Kundalini process you know I have a different model I, I look more on the, at the chakras and I say okay here this chakra is very open and you can speak beautifully about spirituality and um, and maybe you also have bliss experiences but there's only, only in the head and then there's other chakras in you which are very unenlightened and where there's still a lot of animal type impulses there and You want to solve your problems with violence, and you have affairs and and all of that, and and that is not compatible with that.
0: Right. Well, could such a person, could they have had a partial kundalini awakening, which has enlivened some of the upper chakras, like you say, but that has not cleared out the lower chakras?
1: If they would pass my kundalini test, uh, I would say they had a full kundalini awakening but within the Kundalini awakening, it's not like you're enlightened. I mean, this is just the Kundalini. So you go through it and then you get access to more information about yourself than you had before. But what you do very much depends on how much you've been on that track of loving. And and that's why in the good old days, Kundalini awakening, all the teaching around it was kept secret and it was only given from master to disciple. And they felt like, OK, this person is ready because we don't want this to happen to people who are still quite egotistical and uh, confused. But it can happen to them, just like it can happen to people who have mental disease. I also have autistic people who have a Kundalini awakening. It can coincide with any other condition. So ideally, in an ideal world, this would only happen to people who are perfectly prepared, but it is not like that. Young people, when they have a little bit of time, they go on the Internet, go on YouTube and say, oh, let's do this breath work or this shadow work. I mean, when we were young, breath work or shadow work, you had to pay for expensive courses. You didn't have that money for that. And so you would never be exposed to that to that extent. But people now are also more and more. Workplaces, companies that do uh, away days and then they hire a yoga teacher and they do some advanced practices with them. I know stories like that, and boom, somebody <laughs> is going to the awakening afterwards, and then they want to sue the company for causing that. So, through the internet and through having all this information that we have now, more and more people are exposed to this, and also as a culture, particularly we in the West. It becomes more and more mainstream. I have a client, who, he's a school psychologist, and he said to me, he's going to do um, the higher consciousness healing with his pupils. Uh, and I said, that's wonderful. You know, that seems to be a quite progressive school. And he said, no, no, we are completely normal school. He's in Germany. He's going, this will be everywhere. This is not stoppable. These kind of things will come into every school and it is on its way. And now, just imagine how many Kundalini awakenings we will have then. you know I will have a hundred therapists working for me to <laughs> cater to the
0: yeah it's an interesting problem I mean on the one hand, like you say, traditionally, a lot of these teachings were kept secret for good reason because people should reach a certain level of. Mastery or qualification before learning them. And on the other hand, these days with the internet, everything's being spread everywhere. And it's, it's nice that all this great stuff is being spread everywhere, but you can't target it as precisely as a guru might have done in a traditional ashram, you know, in, in the olden days. So it's something that we're kind of working out as a culture. Yeah, I guess.
1: Maybe, yeah. Maybe that's the age of Aquarius that we have this now that we have this mass awakening. Yeah. But I don't see it as something very mystical that comes down from the heavens through higher beings. I I see this coming through the internet. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. You I know? mean, the internet is is an amazing thing. It's it's changing the whole world in profound ways, and it's obviously carrying all kinds of garbage and you know pornography and hacking and all this misinformation that gets spread around. But it's also carrying great stuff. Oh, I just want to clarify one point. You mentioned that a person could have a a full kundalini awakening, but yet still have their maybe some lower chakras gunked up. And when you said that, I was thinking, okay, maybe this is a matter of terminology, because I would think of a full kundalini awakening as only being possible when the whole thing was clear from bottom to top, and then you can have a full kundalini awakening, and that if there was still a lot of gunk in some lower chakras even though you're you're having experiences in the higher ones then it's really not full yet it's still in process
1: now i see it the other way around the the kundalini awakening is the starting point when you start clearing out the chakras because before the kundalini awakening you're not even able to feel the your chakras right. your body is numb
0: but you would you really you use the word eat. full for such an awakening i mean wouldn't "full" mean the process is finished or
1: i don't see the kundalini awakening as something that can finish i think the kundalini is a, this consciousness expansion it's just like an upgrade of your computer you know it was maybe one gigabyte and now it's 10 gigabyte a lot more data comes in so you can do a lot more with your computer and so when you then use all the information that comes in to further your enlightenment, you can go a lot further than without it, because you can feel what's going on in you. And, and people without Kundalini, remember, I, I see them more as frozen. They can't even feel all that stuff. They think, oh, I'm fine. I don't have a shadow side. You yeah. know, what's that?
0: Okay. A couple of times you mentioned your Kundalini test. Do you actually have a, a specific test?
1: Yeah, it's, it's on my website. People just need to put their name in the subscription books and
0: then they get sent this test. What, what are some of the points on it?
1: Well, the first and most important one is that people have an intense quest and thirst for spirituality and they wish to make their life happier and healthier in all aspects. So healthier diet, healthier sex life, healthier everything and strong spiritual quest. And with that comes intensified emotions so people where they had before a little anxiety suddenly they get a panic attack or where they had you know they found this view very nice that they get like an eye orgasm or something like that which is another word for bliss so in very very intensified emotions and with that goes intensified sensitivity that can also go into clairvoyance so people can feel atmospheres they can feel what other people are feeling. They can maybe read other people's thoughts. They feel at vibrations when they go in certain buildings, but they also sense stimuli can be very strong noises too loud, light too bright, that type of thing. And then uh, what they also get, they get these energy movements in the body, you know, a washing machine going in the stomach, energy moving around under the skin like ants or in the body like a snake. People without Kundalini don't have that. And the last one, which is a bit optional, what I differentiate between a mild one and a full Kundalini awakening is that when people have paranormal experiences. So OBEs, out-of-body experiences, talking to the dead, seeing ghosts, seeing demons, having visions, clairvoyance, telepathy, and all that stuff. I think my clients, so half and half, uh, have that with their paranormal experiences. Because that's also part of the consciousness expansion. And when all four criterias without the paranormal experiences are present, then I call uh, call it a mild kundalini awakening. And when they have a full-blown, also paranormal experiences, then I call that a full kundalini ex- experience. But as I said, that in itself is not enlightenment. That's just the yeah, gate yeah. through which you go. And then you can actually pursue the path to enlightenment because you now have an upgraded computer that you can use for that.
0: Yeah, it's like a significant milestone, but it's not the end of the journey by any means. And we know the journey doesn't have an end. Okay, here's a good question that came in from someone named Jean in France, or maybe it's Jean, I don't know. Years ago, Kundalini grabbed me while walking. The rising was powerful and exited the top of my head and showed me unity. I've been a a meditator since then. And the process is now in a refinement phase. At first strong kriyas, then mudras, energy getting more fluid, powerful in deeper states of meditation. Are there signs of kundalini being in the right nadi?
1: Again, I discourage people from thinking about nadis and channels, because that brings this whole process that she described so beautifully, you know, of, uh, you know, having experiences of unity, it brings it back to some sort of materialistic idea of a plumbing system, which we don't really need. Are you on the right path? There are questions for that. Are you more love? Do you have more effortless love and compassion and forgiveness? Do you find it easier to forgive and be loving? Well, that's a big question. And when you can say yes to that, you're definitely on the right path. And you shouldn't just ask yourself, do I think that I'm so much loving? No, you should ask your wife and <laughs> right. your children yeah. and ask them. Have I um, become more big-headed? No, that's the wrong path do I get more experiences that help me to really understand life and have a position in life from which I really find more meaning and more sense of I can contribute to this world and make this world a better place. And this is actually happening, and I actually do it, and people who who I try to benefit are actually giving me that feedback. Yes, it does help. Well, that's how you know that you're on the right path.
0: Yeah, those are good criteria. You have a chapter in your book entitled Integration of the Kundalini – process into our lives. And some of the stuff we've talked about today would make it difficult to work in an office or be a brain surgeon or something like that. So ultimately, whatever attainment we attain, we want it to be a living reality. We want to be able to do normal stuff within reason we might have to define what normal is. Like you were saying earlier, we might need to drop our half of our friends or not, not do the kinds of things we used to like to do. But let's talk about the whole process of integrating kundalini, which again is expanded consciousness into our everyday lives.
1: Well, a lot of people believe that Spiritual development is something that you do on your meditation cushion and then you have amazing experiences and then you get up and you're enlightened and it all will be wonderful. But that's not how it is. You get up and you are changed. And then the environment that you have created for yourself, your relationship, your jobs, your living accommodation and so forth might not fit you anymore. No, then you have a new problem that you didn't set out to have when you started your spiritual quest. And it doesn't go away, you know, it demands that you change your entire life. And that's not so easy, you know, it's all you think. Okay, I can't live in the city anymore, now I have to live in the country. And when I'm in the country, because it's calmer and more conducive to meditation, what will I work, I can't do my job, what shall I do now? And anyway, I'm a computer scientist and that's so boring now, it feels meaningless and now I want to be a healer, I want to really help people, and, but I'm not qualified for that. You know, a lot of questions. Having said that, I don't want to frighten people. This is not something that people have to do. You know, this is something that will evolve in the journey and they always have a word to say in this. And if they absolutely want to stay in the big city, they can. They're always the boss in all of this. I'm just saying typically that's what a lot of people describe but you know I also have had clients and said you said on your website I have to move to the country and I don't want to move to the country now you don't have to move anywhere but the point is as you change you also have to change your environment your relationship and the old marriage that you had or the old friends that you've had it might just not work anymore it might But for some people, if they have been very wise in who they have chosen, maybe it does work.
0: Yeah, Jesus said something about not pouring new wine into old wineskins. You might need to change things as the new consciousness awakens. But you don't necessarily need to make radical, abrupt changes. I mean, maybe sometimes, but very often you have to intuitively feel your way into it over time and one thing leads to the next and, uh, you know, eventually looking back, everything has changed, but it, it didn't change uh, over a weekend or anything.
1: Yes, yourself and myself, we our Kundalini awakening started when we were very young, so we were almost children still and we, we hadn't really set ourselves up in the world in a very fixed way. So, in that respect, that was easier. For my husband, it started when he was 50, then he had his Kundalini awakening. So that was a little bit more of a shock for his sister. But he was
0: already with you, and, so that was pretty good. Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> and another thing that I maybe want to say about the tantric relationship, so if you have a marriage or a relationship with your partner, which I call the tantric relationship, then it makes it a lot easier to integrate these kind of developments. And a tantric relationship really works that way, you with your partner have an agreement or you make an agreement if you haven't one so far that you define what is the purpose of our relationship and ideally you say the purpose of our relationship is that we both grow to our highest potential or enlightenment and that we use every conflict every little thing that doesn't work between us to help our development along and this entails that the person of the two who is like more loving and wise than the other should be some sort of a guide or a teacher in that relationship. So theoretically, both partners could be leapfrogging each other. So one time is one person a little bit ahead and another is the other person a little bit ahead. But usually the person who's more ahead is the one with the stronger feminine side, which is usually the woman. And that's how it is with my clients. That's, that's what I see in 98% of the cases. But it isn't always like that. Sometimes the man is more ahead and then he can be the guide for the woman. And if both the one who teaches and the one who receives the teachings can appreciate that process, then we call that a tantric relationship. And tantric relationship means that everything is woven together. Tantra means weaving together. So spirituality and sexuality and spirituality and having a household life and so forth and when you do that then you can really grow as a couple and your growth is also accelerated because nobody knows you better than your own partner and your own partner can be your best guru better than any kind of other spiritual guru because they see all your little manipulation techniques and your little rationalizations and dishonesties and so on and they can put their finger on it and say don't do that and <laughs> that's not right and so forth so it doesn't mean that every relationship has to break up when you have a kundalini awakening quite the opposite you know if you set it up like that you can really very fast accelerate your mutual development and that's how i do it with my husband and and i think it works extremely well good
0: one point in this area is increased sensitivity you know and a lot of times spiritual people become a lot more sensitive and they think oh i couldn't go to walmart because i can't stand the vibes or the neon lights are are too bright or whatever i think there's something to be said for just toughening up a little bit maybe or integrating in a sense that you aren't so susceptible to these things?
1: Well, I wouldn't use the word toughening up because that doesn't sound very kind to yourself. I encourage my clients to love themselves more with all their problems and weaknesses and with their sensitivities and then try to find a way how that works. And if you don't want to go to the shopping mall anymore, which I can understand very well because I wouldn't want to go there anymore, then you do more internet shopping. And if you don't want to go into a, a bar where they drink lots of alcohol and there's a bit rough white vibe vibes, which I also understand because I wouldn't want to go there. Then go to an old fashioned English tea shop <laughs> if you have it or a nice cafe in, in America where nice people, maybe older people go and, you know, you can work around these things.
0: Yeah, I'll give you an example, though. Like back when I was doing some of those long courses I told you about, if you went into town to buy a toothbrush or something, if you're meditating six or eight hours a day, it was like, whoa, too much, you know, I just can't handle it. But obviously, you know, you come down from all that and get into a more normal routine, and then, of course, you can do something ordinary like that. But some people stay so open and susceptible that they don't seem to be able to ground themselves enough or integrate enough to be able to do normal things. I'm yes. not talking about going to bars or anything like that.
1: In the higher consciousness healing that I teach, we have uh, four different steps. Maybe I could just use that as an example, yeah. uh, what we can do that. So the first step is making more contact with your higher consciousness. A lot of my clients who come to me, they are very much a bit in the new age. They are not so much in a dedicated path like TM or Buddhism or something. But they read a few they read authors, you know, and they might not have a very clear idea who their deity is. And so once that gets established, a lot gets easier because you have somebody, a being to hold on to, like a father or mother being. And when you lie in bed at night and you get a panic attack, that's a good thing to have. And the second step is that you imagine that the deity, right, you start visualizing the deity here in your heart, so it's not up there and you try to get there, no, it dwells in your heart here and it expands in you their light and the light goes around you and makes a big bubble of light around you and all the Buddhas on the images that we have in Tibetan Buddhism, they have this ball of light around them and this light represents the healthy ego boundaries. This is also something that people find really difficult, Uh, another paradox, that on the Hinayana path, we let go of the ego. And on the the Vajrayana path, we strengthen ego boundaries again, very contradictory, but both true. And so when you have the sensory overload and sensitivity and so on, then you can work with that bubble and uh, you can visualize that it helps. Because when you're very open and in the state of oneness, Then like an airplane flies along, you just feel it's driving right through you and through your heart chakra and you think, I'm going to die, I can't stand that airplane noise, (laughs) you know, it's just complete overreactions. All all these kind of things, you go in a shop and you think, oh my God, they're all zombies. You know, you might even see some reality there, but it's too much to take. So you want to be part of this human family. After all, we are born here, we have to live here for a while, we cannot really afford to see other people as zombies or something. And as you said, it also goes away after a while. So there's a lot to be said of to pace yourself in this process. So uh, I know I've heard you've done all these long retreats and in Tibetan Buddhism, we have also long-term retreats, three years retreats. I'm not really a friend of that because it's just pushing this process very, very strongly. And then you change so much so quickly that it becomes hard to integrate. I personally recommend a daily life practice, a regular daily life practice, and maybe a meditation day here and there, so that you can integrate all of that, that the, the changes are not too massive. So you want this melting process of the ice. It should be a trickle, drip, 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 you know, a little bit at a time so that you <laughs> can keep up with that. And not just massive influx of stuff where you get confronted with contents of your mind which are like hell, you know, like a hell experience, you know. You don't really want that if you can help it. But uh, some people do get that. And so you need to calm this process down. And that means do less meditation, read less spiritual books, watch fewer of those Buddhas at the gas pump (laughs) videos for a while, just a few, not too many, and just do normal things. Do some gardening if you can, or go and eat some ice cream with a friend in a cafe. Just pace yourself. It's very important.
0: Yeah, I agree. Different people have different comfort levels, I think, for different things. Some people might be comfortable doing a retreat for a while, a month or something like that, and don't have any trouble integrating back into life. Other people might be completely blown away by that, and it would be... yeah, overload.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. Some people can cope with that, but if you don't cope and you don't know that really beforehand, and then that, then you're a little bit in trouble. afterwards.
0: you have a chapter here called "Walking the Middle Path," and there's some interesting subheads here. For instance, control versus surrender, helping oneself as opposed to relying on God. And the reason I find those interesting is that you know, over the course of my life, I went through a seesaw process between exerting control or going with the flow, you know, or surrendering. And it eventually, I think, pretty much has worked itself out. But I I think it kind of sometimes characterizes the transition from knowing oneself or perceiving oneself as an isolated, bound individual to knowing oneself as unbounded consciousness. And you kind of flip back and forth between those because if you really kind of merge with unbounded consciousness, then you're just going with God's will. But if you think of yourself as an individual, you're in control. And there has to be kind of a transitionary phase to get from one to the other. So maybe you want to comment on that a little bit.
1: Yes, yeah, so in Buddhism we have the famous middle path where you go between extremes. And that doesn't mean a lukewarm middle, but it means that you have both of these poles of these opposites that you have that to to an extreme. So you have strong control and strong surrender at the same time. And that is something where you think, oh, how is that meant to go? But you can learn that. And in the beginning you go, you oscillate, you know, you go between surrender and control back and forth and every time you do it you you hit your head on the wall and it doesn't work until you find that middle ground and get to both yeah, they get integrated both at the same time uh-huh. so let's just say this control and surrender we have this teaching in buddhism is called kirim and sokram so kirim is making an intervention you can imagine like ringing a bell bing so that's intervention we do that with control and then there's the sound like And that you surrender to as much as you can. And then you have to surrender. And uh, let's just say in one practice, maybe you use a mantra. So you use the mantra with control, and then you surrender to its effect. Or when you use the higher consciousness healing, there's one stage where you're meant to love yourself, where you say to yourself, I wish myself to be happy and healed. And it's important that you really say that, with all your willpower, so properly, you know, and not just mechanically, so with a lot of control. And then you surrender that to that, so you are receiving that loving kindness that you've just given to yourself. So you can see love and surrender and control can come together and both in a very strong degree. And that's what we want to do with all sorts of other contradictions that we seem to encounter on the spiritual path. There are certain contradictions that I've encountered over and over again, that my clients, for example, control and surrender. They want to surrender. That's the thing. Please, more surrender. That's that's how you should do it. And I say, no, for yourself in that situation, you need to have more control until you get that middle path. Yeah. Another thing that they want is they want to rely on God and not help themselves. They say things like, it's meant to be, or God wants me to do and they don't realize that they give power away in that respect. So they need to learn to take back the power and say, I want to do this, and do I really want this to happen? If, if not, then I shouldn't be doing this. And so I found caution I have a whole
0: list of them here. You want me to read them?
1: Yeah, if you can just tell me some of yeah, them. Yeah, I have them all
0: summarized. There's caution versus trust, rational thinking versus intuition,
1: my clients usually, they're a little cautious and they don't want to think, oh, this teacher, he might be a charlatan. But that's exactly what they should think. These are just typical contradictions that people have. Then intuition versus rational. It's intuition, they're so good. I have a feeling everything's fine. And the rational mind, oh, no, that's something for stupidly boring people. They just use the rational mind. But that's not a good idea. You need to use both of them. In equal measures because with your intuition you can be spectacularly right but you can also be spectacularly wrong <laughs> if you're so wrong and you don't use your rational mind to really think through what you just uh, had a, this wonderful idea from then you can have really big problems afterwards
0: there's a great verse in the gita that i like a lot it says you have control over action alone never over its fruits so obviously you do have control over what you're doing now, which is another one of your points here, planning the future versus being in the now. But when the results of that action comes, you've already sown that seed, you know, you don't have control then. You're yes. doing new actions that you have control over.
1: This thing of being in the now, as you know, that's a very popular these days, there's some very famous books with something like that in the title and it's people saying, oh, I'm just in the now, everything will be fine. Not so, you know, you can indulge in your addictions and be perfectly happy in the now while you're eating your (laughs) donuts and that tastes really good and (laughs) and drink your beer and and so on. No, you you have to really think forward and and say, if I eat these 10 donuts in one go, how will I feel afterwards or if I do this and that? And both of these things need to be there in equal measure so that you always anticipate the consequences of your actions and people... Think there's an easy way out of that. Just be in the now, everything will be good. Quite the opposite.
0: Yeah. I used to have a friend who was a diabetic and he actually literally would buy a whole box of donuts and eat them. But then he would make <laughs> himself throw up because he couldn't obviously deal with the consequences of eating the donuts. So. <laughs> I don't know why I had to tell everybody that. Irene <laughs> <Because> says I, <laughs> I mean, me either. <laughs> okay, let me just run through a few more of these. Interrupt me if you want to comment on them. But uh, I think this is interesting because it has to do with the whole integration thing, that there are these paradoxical things, and they are not opposed to one another. They need to be integrated or yeah, integrated is the best word. Uh so that you can have both. You can have your intuition and your rational thinking. So another one would be making judgments versus acceptance.
1: That's an interesting one. So people say, but one shouldn't judge. And they don't realize when they say that, well, that's a judgment in itself. Yeah. You just judged. You judged all the people who judged.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not possible to do that. And if you're just accepting then there's a danger, you end up like a doormat, everybody trembles over you. And basically, with all of these contradictions, people want to have spiritual teachings that say, do this and only this. So be loving, be more loving, that's it. But that's never true, you know, because if you're only ever loving, and you can't stand up when somebody invades you or does something bad with you, and you can't exhibit some power where you say, stop, and so on, then all your love will not be um, helpful. So it, it is always about balancing opposites in a way that is conducive to the spiritual path, and that's difficult because we don't. Our mind doesn't want to think that way. We don't think, oh, I do this, but and then I th- need to think of the opposite and do that as well. Oh, that's so complicated. I don't want to hear this anymore but that's really what you have to do or what we all have to do.
0: I think that one way of defining the spiritual path is the balancing of opposites or the integration of opposites. Obviously, ultimately, you are utterly cosmic, you know, you're you're divine, and yet you're an individual. You're an ocean and you're a wave. And it's not a matter of either or, it's a matter of both and.
1: That's right. I mean, there's also people who say, Oh, I have no ego, so I'm enlightened, and, and that's it. And that's really not true, you know, because in Tibetan Buddhism, we have this doctrine of the two truths, so that you have the absolute self in which you are in a state of oneness and one with, with everything. But at the same time, paradoxically, you also have to be like an individual and you, in your personal relationships, And that's also something that people, when they enter these bliss states, they often have that problem that they can, on their meditation cushion, they can go into these amazing states of bliss. Then they get up and into family life, maybe, or with their partner, and then they get really big rages (laughs) because they experience their children or their partner as getting them out of the bliss. And then they, you know, assert themselves in wrong ways and not really understanding that they need to work on both levels. So to learn to be like a healthy ego, psychological work, and to work on states of oneness, which is a spiritual work, and all of that has to happen simultaneously.
0: Yeah. And not only work on it, but eventually it becomes second nature, it becomes one's natural way of functioning, and then you are both cosmic and individual at the same time. And no conflict between the two. It just becomes a spontaneous way of functioning.
1: Yes, I would say that that you really bring that together, that you are an individual and at the same time you are in tune with infinite love and compassion, that really you can only do that when you're in the deity state. That's exactly what that is, you know, that you're functioning as a an individual and have all this loving kindness that goes to everybody. I don't think that from our old ego self that we could ever accomplish that, because that's always either or. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And so what we're saying here, and we'll wrap this one up because some questions came in that I want to ask you, is that we're aspiring to a state which reconciles these polarities and where you can be cautious and trusting, rational and intuitive, you know, planning and spontaneous, you know, making judgments and accepting. Making changes in the outside world and turning inward and meditating. I mean, all these things. You can be in, in a calm, serene samadhi state and dynamic, playing tennis or something, doing something dynamic at the same time. All this stuff gets integrated.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I've used that chapter because most of my clients they are on a on a particular side. You know, they all want to be more intuitive, more surrendering, more loving, and they neglect the other part where they have more power, more control. It's just like the word control. Some people treat it like a dirty word. But if you are at a certain place in your spiritual development, you need a lot of control. So I I replaced the word control because it's such a trigger word for so many people with the word mastery. So mastery is better. Yes,
0: that sounds cooler.
1: (laughs) You have to get mastery over certain (laughs) emotions. You need to tame those impulses. And no amount of surrender to the emotional, to through, through the, the content of your mind will help you to let go of it. You have to really learn to master that.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. Let me ask you some of these questions that came in. This one is from Amelia in Portland, Oregon. Can you please speak to the issues of illness with kundalini awakenings? I experienced a work-related injury that led to various rashes, and I believe that coincided with a kundalini awakening.
1: Having a Kundalini awakening doesn't mean that we are always healthy, unfortunately. That would be nice. But I will say that from my observation, and after all, I've worked with 1,500 clients. Altogether, they're a really healthy bunch. I mean, when you think every second person has heart problems or cancer problems. And in the so on, general population, re- yeah. In the general population, in my clientele, hardly ever How many people did I have with cancer? You know, I can count them, you know, one, two, three, maybe. Very, very rare. And also those over 50. So why is that? First of all, I believe it's because the Kundalini process drives us to make our life healthier and better in every way. So we eat more healthily, we exercise and we do all the healthy things that we're supposed to do more easily. We can let go from addictive kind of eating or alcohol and so on. In that way, we are healthier, but also through the clearing out of the unconscious mind, there's less repressed emotions, and the repressed emotions can make you very sick. You know, repressed anger is a major contributor to, and that's not only me saying that, there's also studies about that, it's a major contributor to a lot of illnesses. So if you can actually allow the anger to come up, and you liberate it, and you let it go through various techniques then the anger cannot cause arthritis or Parkinson or all sorts of horrible diseases. Now, the Kundalini awakening make you sick. I personally say no. The Kundalini is not a thing anyway. It's a consciousness expansion. Can it make a consciousness expansion make you sick? I don't think so. If anything, it makes you healthier through the process that I've just described. Now, can you have all sorts of illnesses while you have a kundalini awakening absolutely because there's still enough of what have you in your unconscious mind that causes these seeds of illness to to spread in you that's totally possible but i draw a line between what i call kundalini symptom and real disease and kundalini symptom Symptoms that might cause pain and discomfort, but they don't cause real physical symptoms that a normal doctor would diagnose as disease. So when there is a diagnosis of some sort there, then I say, okay, that's disease and it needs to be treated. And we can work on on the psychotherapeutic level and also with meditation on resolving the issue. But it's not a kundalini symptom. A kundalini symptom is these pains and that's always um, because it's emotions that are kind of half stuck in your unconscious mind and don't really come out completely. And that is the first thing that you feel. You feel it as pain. So when the ice is melting, so when, when we are in the ice state, then we, we are numb, we feel nothing. <laughs> oh, that's good. And then when the ice is half melted, then we feel that as pain. When the ice is melted in the, into the water, we feel that as emotions. And then when we learn to to use those emotions and turn them around and liberate them, we feel them as bliss, and the bliss is then the steam. So we always have the same aggregate, ice, half-melted ice, water, and steam, and that coincides with numbness, pain, negative emotions, bliss. Good. So I hope I I answered that question
0: to that. I think you did. And obviously there's more elaboration on this in your book, uh, which uh, we'll talk about before we conclude. Amelia had a second question. Can the Kundalini awakening have begun years ago? I've been on a spiritual path for over 40 years and began having prophetic dreams 10 years ago. I would just add here that some say that a Kundalini awakening can have begun in a past life and it just continues in this life. Um, Maybe you agree with that?
1: When I first looked at my own life, then I thought my kundalini had uh, started when I was 24. And then when I understood a bit more about the kundalini and thought about it more deeply, then I realized, no, it actually started at 17. I see it like that, that if you have a kundalini awakening very early in life, like in your teenage years or early 20s maybe, that, that's a continuation from, from the last life. It just needs the right trigger. It's a part, in a way, you grow up and you grow into your Kundalini awakening. That's how it was very much for myself. Was that the whole question? Oh, she's, well, she
0: just mentioned <laughs> she's been on a spiritual path for 40 years and began having prophetic dreams 10 years ago. Yes,
1: yeah, so if she looks for those five criteria, so interest in spirituality, take prophetic dreams that could go in the direction of paranormal experiences, particularly if they've come true. And then now then she needs to look intensified emotions, energy movements in the body, and increased sensitivity, when that started really to become very strong and clearly visible. Now that's where I would if I would work with her, pinpoint her start of Kundalini Rising. Okay.
0: Here's a question from Mitchell in Nova Scotia. Canada. He said, uh, I was in a car accident that also caused my kundalini to rise. Sometimes I have difficulty discerning between the kundalini symptoms and the physical symptoms. What do you think is the best way to go about this?
1: I tell you how I do it. If people say to me, I've got uh, bad physical symptoms, I I send them to, to the doctor. You know, I don't just say, okay, I believe you, this is all kundalini, because that would be irresponsible. And if the doctor says, yes, no, there is nothing wrong with you, we checked you all through with the neurologist and everything, and you had an MRI, and no, everything's fine, then we say, okay, then we see it as Kundalini symptoms. But other than that, if you go to a physiotherapist and they can say, yes, this is all very, very cramped up in your shoulder and you need to do this exercise, please do the exercise, listen to your physiotherapist. And also, if a doctor says you have a a disease and here's the diagnosis, Take it seriously. don't need to take prescription drugs if you think you have a better option, but take it seriously. Yeah.
0: Here's one from Martin Klein. I'm not sure where Martin is located, but he says, referring to the earlier topic of addiction, I experienced twice when I fell in love and my heart opened that my decades-old addiction just fell away for a few weeks, but I came back later because I couldn't sustain the openness of the heart. Do you recommend discipline and building the will to resist the addiction or rather emphasize opening the heart or both or something else?
1: <laughs> well, o- opening the heart and doing more loving kindness definitely is a good thing. And f- for addiction, I recommend going to one of those groups. You know, They have been shown, like AA or some other addiction group, they have been shown to be very effective And then you can also do the higher consciousness healing. It's all described in my book. It's not very difficult to learn and do that in parallel. And I've had clients with addictions and they got rid of it very easily. I'm not saying everybody can do it, but I definitely would say try it and see how you go. Yeah,
0: Martin, I would also suggest, I interviewed a guy last week whose interview I'll be putting up tomorrow named Dietrich Wolsack, and he has some real interesting things to say about addiction, having been addicted himself, and he has a process where he works with people, which sounds pretty successful, so check that out, too. Okay, is there anything, Tara, that, well, i mean, sure there are a lot of more things we could talk about, but is there anything that you feel is important that we haven't had a chance to get to that you want to bring up?
1: Yeah, maybe we can talk about the stages of consciousness. Uh, there's another book I've written. It's called Stairway to Heaven, in which I outline nine stages of consciousness. Okay. and I think I have a graphic for uh, that. Quite, there we go. Yes. Ah, yeah, you have a gra- okay, graphic. Okay, I'm
0: showing that exactly. now. And,
1: there, and um, as you can see, there's two flights of stair- uh, stairs, and it describes the whole... Development from unconscious dream, people were very unconscious to full enlightenment, and the idea is that we have to go through that process, through these nine steps in an orderly fashion, and we cannot leave anybody, anything out. So it's a bit an expanded version of the four levels of spiritual practice that I've uh, described before, and we start with the innocence level, where we have, where we live in groups of people, you know, like in our family or tribal people living in groups. There's a certain passivity, a lot of trust, and a lack of desire. And this is the proverbial Garden of Eden, and people want to go back to that. And uh, as they climb up this they're aware of heaven, they lose this, this innocent stage, and they find that very painful, and they want to go back to it. But the idea is that you shouldn't go back to this unawareness, but try to develop to full awareness, which is enlightenment. And then maybe something happened to somebody who is on an innocence level, maybe they are excluded from their group, or they see that other people can do so much more than them, and that, that catapults them out of this pleasant dream, and they wake up and they're very rageful and very angry and full of envy, and all these poisons of the mind come up in them. And this sounds like quite catastrophic, but really it is the starting point of this, of this spiritual path. And when we think about children, this is what we see in them when they have their terrible tools. Or in our teenagers, they become very rebellious, very angry and want to do it their way. And so some people get stuck on that level all their lives and they do bad things and they're violent and they're negative and so on and they lie and they steal. And then they experience lots of negative repercussions. And then that might then get them onto the next stage, which is the obedience stage, where people get into understanding that they have to be dutiful and that they have to adhere to all sorts of rules. And if they go too far with that, then they become very self-sacrificing and they follow typically fundamentalist uh, religion, and their established patriarchy. So women have to submit to men, gay have to be banned, and what else?
0: Oh, lots of things. <laughs> uh, so,
1: yeah, sex before marriage is sinful, and and all all of these things. So very very repressive. And then maybe some people realize. That the people in their fundamentalist religion, the priests, that they don't adhere to those rules themselves, that they visit prostitutes, that they do all sorts of bad things, and that shakes them out of that state. And then I saw a funny, uh, I state. saw a
0: funny graphic the other day which said, "Fundamentalists, when are you going to realize that spending eternity with you is not a selling point?"
1: <laughs> and then uh, they also, then they see now all this sacrifice is too much. And then they enter into the ambition stage. And the ambition stage is the, the predominant stage of our society. So it's materialistic, very rational, very scientific, brings a lot of good things, democracy, free speech. So we shouldn't look down on that. But there is a drawback, and that is people, when when they are in this worldview, they cannot cope with really bad Terrible things. So once there, maybe a child dies or they get cancer, then then they say, "Why me?" and and they also feel at some point very meaningless, you know, because if everything is random, your whole life is meaningless, and so there is some sort of malaise or depression that sets in, and that catapults people onto the next stage, the, which is the sharing stage. That's where people become very interested in protecting the environment and having equalness in relationships. And they say women and men are totally the same and we are all the same and the weakest members should always be included in the group. And that's all very wonderful. There's just some drawbacks of this stage and that is that people feel often quite powerless, that they're in a stage of grief because the environment gets destroyed and they often feel... I have these wounds and my parents gave me this trauma and now I'm this victim of this trauma and there's nothing can be done about it. And so then they are stuck in this eternal grief. And then once they sense at some point that that's not the answer and that there's more to it, then they turn around on their area of consciousness and then they go to the responsibility stage. And I believe a lot of your viewers who watch this video, they're probably on the responsibility stage, I could imagine. And that's where people feel quite empowered again. They're not stuck in that grief again. They still want to save the environment, but they don't feel so bad about all of this. And they also become very motivated and very able to achieve again. And and that's really where the Hinayana path starts, the mindfulness. And they start mindfulness, meditation, observing, also all the manifesting your dreams, the law of attraction that belongs into that category. And from that point on, people are very motivated to develop. So they are not going to propelled by one crisis after the other through these stages of consciousness. So they then go to the next stage, which is called love, where they very strongly meditate on love, forgiveness, make that the centerpiece of their life. And that would be the Mahayana. Then from there, you start getting these bliss experiences. You start working with the chakras. You get a Kundalini awakening, ideally only then then you get to the bliss stage where you intensely work on these bliss experiences on your chakra work you often withdraw into hermitage you withdraw from society and work on yourself and from then on you know you get the first experiences as experiencing yourself as a deity and that would be then the enlightenment stage and then you come out of your hermitage you come out into the world You are on a stage, you act in the world, you are recognized as this being that can really change something. People will recognize you as such. And then you can act and do a lot of good in the world. So I found that people have to go through all of these stages that you cannot jump from a rageful dominance stage to love stage or bliss stage. It's not possible You can go through these stages rather quickly, but you will still at least spend months or years on each stage. And that starts basically in childhood. We all start on the innocence level as children, as babies, because then we are trusting. Even if you have bad parents, we still trust them and we are very dependent on them. And then gradually we go up, and let's say we are teenagers, or then some people are already on the ambition stage or sharing stage, and then in our adult life we can develop further.
0: Some of those kind of reminded me of the ten ox-herding pictures in Zen, especially the, the final stages where you, you're enlightened and then you come back into the world and help people.
1: That's great, yeah, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, oh, that's kind of a classic thing in Zen, There's ten ox-herding pictures. So that's great. We've covered a lot. Let me just show some of your websites here. You have one, which is a general one, Tara Springett, Buddhist Therapist and Teacher. And then you have a Kundalini Symptoms website, which looks similar in terms of the graphic, but has, has different content. You've written a bunch of books. I imagine that the book most relevant to this conversation would be your uh, Healing Kundalini Symptoms book. I'll have a link to that book on your page on batgap.com, so people can just click to it and go to it.
1: I also have a second book on Kundalini, Enlightenment Through the Path of Kundalini, which is a more in-depth explanation how to awaken the Kundalini, if you wish to do that.
0: Good. good. I, I think I've already set up that page and linked to both of those. Or people can just search for your name on Amazon or whatever and find all these. So thanks, Tara. I've enjoyed spending this time with you.
1: Thank you, Rick, and I enjoyed it also.
0: We'll be in touch, and, and thanks to those who have been listening or watching. Next week, I have a young poet named Chaylen Harkin, and people are really excited about her. She's kind of like a young roomie, and uh, she says that these poems just come through her. She was never even really that into poetry, but these beautiful things come through. So that'll be a little different than all the other conversations I've had that I can remember. I'm looking forward to that one. There's an upcoming interviews page on batgap.com where you can see what we we have scheduled. So I won't just go through them all right now, but stay tuned. And um, if you go to the website, uh, you'll see some other things there, like signing up for the email notification and audio podcast and stuff. So just explore the menus. All right. Thanks for listening or watching. And thanks again, Tara.
1: Thank you to you.